James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we confess first and foremost to you that we are a sinful people. We are a guilty people. We are a broken people. We have too often forsaken you, the fountain of living waters, to hew for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which hold no water. And yet, Lord, we also confess that you are kind, merciful, and gracious. That you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And so, Lord, it is on the basis of your gracious character this morning that we come to you, that we come to your word. And we would ask for your kindness once more, that you would rebuke us, that you would reprove us, that you would correct us where we need to be corrected, that you would train us for righteousness, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, we turn to you as we open your word this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. One of the ancient world's greatest empires was the empire of Babylon. The Babylonians essentially ruled the entire known world in the 7th century BC. Their kingdom stretched all the way from India in the east to North Africa in the south to Greece in the west. It was a vast, massive, incredible empire. The capital of the empire was known as Babylon the Great, found in modern-day Iraq. Babylon the Great was considered the strongest fortress in the entire world. In 450 BC, the ancient historian Herodotus wrote that its walls were 56 miles in length, 80 feet thick, and 320 feet high. It was an incredible fortress, impossible to breach. The city sat on the beautiful Euphrates River, which actually ran under its walls through the middle of the city. This set the stage for one of history's most interesting events of war. On a fateful night in 539 BC, the Babylonian king Belshazzar held a grand feast unlike anything ever known before. Drunkery, debauchery, gluttony. It's peacetime, so let's party. They thought they were at peace, but little did they know 
their enemies were marching on them for war. While King Belshazzar and his subjects were drunk with wine, the Persian general Cyrus was not very far away. Upstream from Babylon, Cyrus stationed his troops, and they began to dig a channel. They diverted the waters of the Euphrates River so that they no longer flowed through Babylon. And in the midst of their revelry, no one even noticed that the waters of the Euphrates were going down, down, down. And when the waters had finally subsided, Cyrus and his army literally walked into the most impregnable fortress in the ancient world on the dry bed of the Euphrates River. That night, King Belshazzar was killed, his army was slaughtered, and thus came the end of one of history's proudest monarchies. You actually probably know this story well. It is actually the story of Daniel chapter 5 from a historical perspective, otherwise known in the Bible as the chapter of the writing on the wall. But for this morning, I'd like to use this as a picture, an image, a parable, if you will. King Belshazzar thought he was at peace when he should have been at war. King Belshazzar was lulled into a peacetime mindset when he should have been fighting for his life. King Belshazzar was in a fight, but he didn't know it. King Belshazzar was at war, and he didn't even realize it. Brothers and sisters, we need this image as a reminder that we too are at war. That's right, we are at war. We may be lulled into a peacetime mindset, we may be lulled into a false sense of security, but the reality is, is that the Christian is at war. We are at war with our own sins. We are at war with temptation in our own lives. Our weapons are not guns, bullets, and swords, but the gospel, scripture, and prayer. There is a war happening between Christ and Satan, between heaven and hell, between truth and falsehood. There is a war between the church and the gates of Hades, between this world and the world to come, between belief and unbelief. Brothers and sisters, we are at war with our sins. And sin is so deceptive that some of us do not even realize it is trying to destroy us. If you think in your Christian life that you are at peace with sin, then you are blind to the war raging around you. Sin is marching on your gates as we speak. Whether you know it or not, we are at war with sin and temptation. Now before we proceed, it is first necessary to answer the question, what is temptation? What is temptation? And I can think of nobody better to answer this question than the prince of the Puritans, John Owen. John Owen wrote the definitive work on sin and temptation. And if you read Sin and Temptation, you will ask yourself, if this pastor has been dead for 300 years, how come he knows me so well? Owen defined temptation as, a temptation is anything that exerts a force or influence to seduce the mind and heart 
from the obedience which God requires to any kind of sin. It is anything that forces us, that tempts us away from righteousness towards unrighteousness. It is anything that influences us away from obedience and towards sin. Temptation is a solicitation to sin. It is an invitation to sin. Now notice that temptation is not the same thing as sin. Temptation is distinct from sin. To be tempted is not necessarily to sin. To give in to temptation is to sin, but to be tempted in and of itself is not to sin. It is not the same thing as sin. And how do we know this for sure? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the perfect righteous Son of God, was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So let this morning be a reminder for us, brothers and sisters, that no disciple is above his master. Sin and temptation were Christ's enemies, and sin and temptation are our enemies. And for the sake of our souls, we need to war against sin and temptation in our lives. We must kill sin. We must mortify sin. But in order to do that, we must first understand sin and temptation. In order to defeat our enemy, we must first understand our enemy. We must understand how our enemy works, how our enemy operates. We must seek to grasp how our enemy is trying to destroy us. So let's do that this morning. Let's let James, the inspired author of this book, take us behind enemy lines in our battle with sin and temptation. I'd like us to see five essential characteristics of sin and temptation. Five essential characteristics of sin and temptation. First, the occasion of temptation. The occasion of temptation. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, if you're reading James chapter 1, and you get to this section, you might think that this is coming out of nowhere, that James introduces this section out of nowhere, randomly, arbitrarily, accidentally. It seems like this does not have any connection with what comes before it. After all, in verses 2 through 12, James has clearly been talking about trials, not temptations. James 1.2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And then we arrive to verse 13, and James says, When tempted. Hmm. It seems like James is suddenly, without warning, changing the subject. Actually, he's not. The very same word used for trial is the very word used for temptation. 
In the Greek, the word used for trials is the exact same word as the word used for temptation. It is the very same word, the Greek word, perasmas, just translated differently based on the context. There's a lesson for us here. James is telling us that in every trial, there is a potential for temptation. Every trial can turn into a temptation. Commentator Scott McKnight says, every test carries with it the possibility of the believer failing that test and turning it into a temptation. Brethren, God has given you trials in your life. God has designed trials in your life to perfect you, to sanctify you, to purify you. But if we are not careful, we can take these trials and turn them into occasions for sin. Every single trial you meet, every single test of your faith is a chance to grow or a chance to sin. Every trial is an opportunity. Will you let it purify you or will you let it tempt you? Those are the options. Those are the only two options. And what we choose makes all the difference. You see, God tests us, but God never tempts us. God may give us a test, but God cannot give us a temptation. God cannot be tempted. He himself tempts no one. God is entirely pure, holy, righteous, and true. And so it only follows that God cannot tempt anyone. James calls God the father of lights, James 1.17. Psalm 119.68 says, God is good and does good. Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. God cannot tolerate wrongdoing. There is no trace of evil in God's nature. There is no whisper of evil. There is no speck or tinge of wickedness in God. There is not even a hint. So if we get our doctrine of God right, if we get our theology proper correct, this means that the test comes from God, but the temptation comes from us. The trials come from God, but the temptations come from us. You see, brothers and sisters, we should not mistake the occasion of our sin with the source of our sin. We should not mistake the circumstances of our sin, which are the test from God, with the cause of our sin, which is our own lust. When I was a second semester senior in high school, I was taking physics. And we had one very interesting exam in physics that I'll always remember. We had to build a bridge out of balsa wood and glue, and those were the only two ingredients that you could use. And the exam came when the teacher would take our bridge up to the front of the class 
and he would place weights upon the bridge. And you were assigned a grade based on how much your bridge could hold. So I admit, I had a little bit of a case of senioritis. Not that that would happen to any of you guys. So I started working on my bridge at about 11 p.m. the night before. And I stayed up all night. I slept probably two hours. And the next day was the exam. So I brought my bridge to class. And a few people went in front of me. They brought their bridges up to the front of the class, put it on the table. The teacher would place weights on the bridge, weight after weight after weight after weight. And they all did very well. They all got an A. And then it was my turn. I was a little anxious, but confident. So I brought my bridge up to the front of the class and went and sat down. And the teacher took the first weight and placed it on my bridge. And you could hear a crack. You could also hear a gasp from the class. And he placed the second weight on the bridge, and the bridge collapsed right down the middle. And I was just devastated. Looks like bridge building was not in my future. So you could say that it's the teacher's fault that my bridge broke. You could say, well, if the teacher hadn't tested my bridge, it would not have failed. If the teacher just hadn't placed weights on my bridge, then my bridge would not have collapsed. You could say that, but you would be wrong. The test is not the cause of the failure. It is only the occasion for the failure. The test is not the source of the failure. It is only the circumstance for the failure. I was the cause of the failure. The failure was due to the fact that my bridge just wasn't built very well. I was responsible for the failure. I was the source of the failure, not the teacher. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we must distinguish between the occasion of our sin and temptation and the cause of our sin and temptation. We must distinguish between the external trial and the internal temptation. God tests us, but he does not tempt us. Which leads to our second point, our second essential characteristic of sin and temptation, the source of conception. The source of conception. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. James tells us here where sin is conceived in our lives. He tells us the source, the origin of sin and temptation in our lives. It is our own lust, our own lust, our own desires. It's not the test outside that tempts us. It is the traitor inside that tempts us. The responsibility for our sin and temptation lies squarely on our own shoulders. We have no one else to blame for our sin and temptation but ourselves. We are the source. We are liable. We are responsible. Mark 7.21, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adultery. Robert Murray McShane the legendary preacher of Dundee, Scotland, who died at the age of 29, he said this, I have discovered 
that the sins of every sin known to man reside in my evil heart. And if you know anything about McShane, he was the holiest of men. My greatest enemy is my own heart. Your greatest enemy is your own heart. And we must get this into our head. Because when we sin, the first instinct of sin is to deny it. It's to blame shift, to blame somebody else. And some can be so audacious as to blame God for their sin. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is exactly what happened in the garden with the very first sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Adam blamed not only his wife, but he tried to blame God. Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The woman whom you gave to be with me, God, that's blame shifting. That's denial. That's blaming God for your sin. Now you would say, oh, I mean, I would never have the audacity or the foolishness to ever blame God for my sin and temptation. Oh no? Perhaps we are more like our father Adam than we would ever care to admit. When we sin, sometimes we can say to ourselves, well, if my parents had only loved me more growing up, then I wouldn't sin like this. If my spouse would only respect me more or pay more attention to me, then I wouldn't sin like this. If my children would only obey me more, then I wouldn't sin like this. Translation, God, if you had given me better parents or a better spouse or better children, then I wouldn't sin like this. It's the parents you gave me, God. It's the spouse you gave me, God. It's the children you gave me, God. But that's theologically incorrect. The trouble is not without. The trouble is within. The trouble lies within our own hearts. Or we project this blame shifting onto others. My kids are hanging around all the wrong people. If they just wouldn't hang around those people, then they wouldn't be like that. Or my kid is listening to all the wrong music. If he or she just would stop listening to that music, they wouldn't behave like that. Translation, my child's enemy, my child's greatest enemy is without. My child's greatest enemy is external. But again, are we listening to what James is saying? Your child's greatest enemy is his own heart. It's his own lust. Now, look, I'm not doubting and I'm not saying that there is no such thing as influence. There is such a thing as influence. There is such a thing as outside factors or people influencing us into sin. I'm not arguing that. Nor am I saying that you should never seek to improve your circumstances. Psalm 1 makes very clear that we should not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. That's very clear. 
All I am saying is that these circumstances reveal something that is already present in your heart. Those external things can be an enemy, but they are not the enemy. Our greatest enemy is the traitor within. And we should not neglect the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Now, practically speaking, if all this is true, this means we really need to pray. If sin and temptation are found within our hearts, then we must mold our hearts to the heart of God, and we do so with prayer. But the problem is, is when do we most often pray about our sin and temptation? We pray after our sin and temptation. We pray after we've sinned, and we confess our sin to God, and we say, deliver us, O Lord. And that is good. That is a good thing. We should confess our sins to God, and we should pray for deliverance. But Jesus reminds us to pray not just after the temptation, but before the temptation. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray before the temptation. Jesus says in a familiar passage, Matthew 6, 13, the Lord's Prayer, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When is that prayer prayed? Before the temptation. Lead us not into temptation. And it's the very same word that is used in James chapter 1. Lead us not into perasmos. You know, this is such a familiar verse. But do we actually do it? Do we actually pray this part of the Lord's Prayer? Do you pray before the trials, before the temptations, before the tests? Brothers and sisters, if you know you're going to be tested, if you know you're going to go into a situation where you might be tempted, perhaps you might be tempted to lust, perhaps you might be tempted to steal, perhaps you might be tempted to anger, Perhaps you might be tempted to boast. Jesus is telling us to pray before the temptation. Pray beforehand. Pray ahead of time. Pray to God, lead us not into temptation. Don't just be reactionary. Be proactive. Don't just pray after the sin. Pray before it. Don't just confess the sin. Prevent it. The third essential characteristic of sin and temptation is the trap of deception. The trap of deception. Verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Sin is deceptive. Sin is deceiving. What initially looks attractive to us leads to death. There are two ways that James mentions in this verse that sin can deceive us. The first way is, is that sin can make a bad thing look good. Sin can make evil look desirable. Sin can make wickedness look attractive. To illustrate this, in verse 14, James, when he says, carried away and enticed, he's actually using an analogy 
of an animal trap or a fish hook. You know what that's like. You put a piece of bait in a trap, you put a piece of bait on a fish hook, and you're enticed. You see the bait. You see that it looks good for food. It is desirable to the eyes. You take and eat, and just like that, you are carried away to death. Sin makes the wicked things of the world look good. But there's another way that sin deceives. Sin can turn something good into something bad. The first way is that sin can twist an evil thing to look good, but it can also twist a good thing into evil. The word used for lust in verse 14 is the word epithumia. Epithumia. It does not just speak of evil desire, it speaks of over-desire. It has that word epi at the beginning of it, the prefix epi. Epi means on top of or over. It speaks of an over-desire, wanting something overly, wanting something unrighteously, wanting something unnaturally or exceedingly. It refers to a covetous desire. It refers to an idolatrous desire, an over-desire. And it means that you can take something good and you can turn it into sin by over-desiring something. For instance, let's say you start with a good desire for your children. Let's say you want your children to get a good education, to get good grades so that they can be successful in life. That is a good desire. But somewhere along the way, your whole identity is bound up in how your kids are doing at school. You struggle to love your children because they are not living up to your expectations. There's bitterness them at them. There's unforgiveness towards them. Your once good desire has now turned into an epithumia, an over-desire, an idolatrous desire, a covetous desire. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe for you, it's a spouse, it's a desire for a spouse, a desire for your children, a desire for career, job, desire for bank account, desire even parents. And you say, what's so wrong about those things? What's so wrong about spouse? What's so wrong about children? What's so wrong about parents? But if you have an over-desire for them, a desire for them more than God, then you have now turned a good thing into an epithumia a sinful desire. James says, do not be deceived, my dear brethren. Even the good things in life can tempt us to sin. The fourth essential characteristic of sin and temptation is the power of seduction. The power of seduction, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, what I want you to see in this verse is something very simple. There is a noticeable change in analogy. We are no longer talking about an animal trap. We're no longer talking about a fish hook. We are now talking about sexual 
imagery. It's a sexual analogy. The analogies of sexual reproduction. We are talking about lust, conception, pregnancy, and birth. Lust here is personified as a woman. And when the woman, whose name is Lust, conceives, she gives birth to a baby called Sin. Lust gets pregnant, and she delivers a baby called Sin. And when sin is accomplished, or rather when sin is fully grown, sin also gives birth to another baby called death. And so we have three generations in this verse. We have the grandmother, lust, who delivers a daughter called sin, who delivers a granddaughter called death. It goes from lust to sin to death. Now, this is an allusion to the harlot of the book of Proverbs. Listen to how lust is personified in Proverbs 7. And I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. If you read Proverbs 7, you will encounter the sensory experience of this foolish man being led to slaughter. Talks about all five senses. See, smell, taste, touch, hear. It is an experience. It is a sensual experience, a desire, an attraction. So what is James getting at? Why does he so abruptly change the analogy to this analogy. What is his point? Well, James uses the imagery to tell us that there is a spiritual attraction to sin that is as powerful as sexual attraction. There is a spiritual power in sin that is rooted in desire. It is akin to sexual attraction. There is a power to sin that goes beyond the will. There is a power to sin that goes beyond the intellect. There is a power to sin that is rooted in the sensual attraction of desire. We all know that the raw, instinctive, sexual attraction has the power to overcome even the mind and the will. Power of sin goes beyond the will. For instance, when we sin, we often think of sin only in terms of rights and wrongs. We often think of sin only in terms of breaking laws. We need to obey the law. It's a matter of cold, hard law. God has said, don't do this, and I did it. But the problem is, when we think of sin only in terms of breaking the law, we will think of fighting sin only in terms of willpower. I just got to do it. So when you sin, 
You will berate yourself. You'll scold yourself. You'll even punish yourself for breaking the law. Because that's what happens when you break the law. You get punished. You'll scold yourself. You'll berate yourself. You'll punish yourself. But you will never overcome sin. You always go back to it. Because the power of sin goes beyond the will. The power of sin also goes beyond the intellect. You know what I mean. We often know that it is wrong, and yet we still do it. When I was an elder back in our old church in Riverside, we had a woman in our congregation, a member of our church, who cheated on her husband. She committed adultery. Her husband was a good man to her. He was faithful to her. He loved her. He worked very hard at his job for her. And yet she committed adultery. She ended up running away with her lover. She packed her bags and left him on a Saturday night. The next day was Lord's Day, Sunday. And he had just had his wife leave him the night before, but he came to church to be with the people of God, to worship God. And when he walked through the doors, he hugged me, and he wept there on my shoulder. As the congregation was singing hymns, he wept there on my shoulder. And I can still remember my shirt wet with the tears of his weeping after his wife had left him. But I will never forget what his wife said when confronted about her adultery. She said, I know it's wrong. I know my husband loves me. I know that he cares for me. I know that he's been good to me. Brothers and sisters, behold the power and deceitfulness of sin. She knew it was wrong. She knew it was wrong, and yet she still did it. Because the power of sin goes beyond the intellect. What this means, brethren, is you will never defeat sin just by filling your head with theological knowledge about God. You will never defeat sin if you just read your Bible to gain information about God. And you will never defeat sin if you scold yourself and berate yourself and even punish yourself for breaking the law. You will never defeat sin that way. Brothers and sisters, we must fight sin on the level of desire. We must have our hearts melted by God. We must desire God. We must have our hearts engulfed by God. We must have our hearts enraptured by God, captured by God. We need to have our hearts captured by the full experience of God, to be attracted to God, to be consumed by his love on an experiential level. We must fight the desire of sin on the level of desire. We must fight the power of sin on the level of desire. Now, some Reformed people will be very uncomfortable with this kind of language. To experience God? To have our hearts melted 
to have our hearts enraptured or captured. It's too mystical. It's too emotional. No, it's not. It's biblical. Listen to the biblical language. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 1611, in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 27.4, behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.25, whom have I in heaven but you and besides you I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 36.1, O God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the language of the experience, the language of the senses? Do you hear the sensory experience the language of desire, the language of attraction, the language of love. Brothers and sisters, we need not only to obey the law, and that we do need to do, we need to obey the scriptures. We need not only an accurate knowledge of God, and that we need. We need to know God accurately and truly according to his word. We need not just those two, but we must desire God. We must be attracted to God. We must be fulfilled by God on a spiritual level. We must conquer the power of lust with the power of love. We need an expulsive power of a new affection. We need to desire God. The fifth and last essential characteristic of sin and temptation is the goal of destruction. The goal of destruction, verse 15. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice there's a process with sin. There's a goal. The goal of sin is death. The goal of sin is to destroy you. There's a progression. There's a deadly chain of events, and it ends in death. And we all know this. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. For the unbeliever, this refers to physical and spiritual death, eternal separation from God. For the believer, while there is no possibility of eternal separation from God, there remains the specter of physical death. Sin is seeking to fight you to the death. In other words, the goal of sin is always to bring you to the farthest extreme possible. The goal of sin is to bring you to the farthest extreme of sin, ruin, and destruction. It is never satisfied with just one isolated sin. It wants all of you. It wants to consume you. It wants to destroy you. It is only by the grace of God in this world that sin does not always accomplish its goal. There's a true story of a young man with a pregnant wife. This young man, he struggled with lust. And he would drive through the wrong part of town. And he would see this woman, a prostitute, that would catch his eye. He was enticed by his own lust. But he didn't cut it off. Instead, he kept thinking about her, dwelling on her. 
lust had conceived and gave birth to sin. And he gave in to his lust, and he thought he was just affecting himself. It's just my little sin, just one time, just an isolated little sin. Nobody has to know. Little did he know he had just contracted HIV. He went home to his wife. He didn't tell her. She delivered a baby. The baby ended up dying from HIV. His wife ended up dying from HIV AIDS. And he himself ended up dying from HIV AIDS. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin has a deadly chain of events. It wants to bring you to the farthest possible extreme. You hear people committing gross sins, adultery, tearing families apart. They're in jail for tax evasion and fraud, murder even. You think these people started out wanting that? Of course not. All it starts with is just one little sin. Just my little sin. Nobody has to know. Just an isolated sin, we tell ourselves. It starts with a look of lust. It starts with a preoccupation with greed. Starts with a brooding spark of anger. But sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin, begets destruction. Sin is like a consuming fire. It is never satisfied. It always wants more. So brothers and sisters, we must look beyond our isolated sins. We must look to see what sin is trying to do to us. We must look at the end goal of sin, the end of the process of sin. We must look with anticipation at the end of the process. If you don't want the extreme, don't start the process. If you don't want the goal, cut off the root. If you don't want the fruit, don't plant the seed. John Owen tells us that be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Sin brings forth death. Sin gives birth to death. If you're not a believer here this morning, there is only one way for you to escape this death. It is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived the perfect life that you could not, died for your sins and rose again on your behalf, then you will be saved from this death, from eternal death, from eternal separation from God. It is only in the gospel that you can know the death of death and the death of Christ. It is only in the gospel that Christ can be for you of sin, the double cure, to save you from its guilt and power. If you're a believer here this morning and you are just overcome, overwhelmed with sin and temptation in your life, let's hear the testimony of one of history's great reformers, Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously tried to conquer his sin all by himself. He became an extraordinarily successful Catholic monk. He plunged himself into asceticism, fasting, prayer. He went without sleep. He endured bone-chilling cold without a blanket. He even whipped himself. He beat himself. He would spend hours and hours in the confessional booth only to return a few minutes later because he had just remembered one more sin he had forgotten to confess. He thought if he did all these things, he could conquer his own sin. 
Years later, after Luther had been saved, after he had been born again by the word of the truth, the gospel, he wrote a letter counseling a friend who was in despair over sin and temptation. Luther wrote to his friend Jerome, Excellent Jerome, you say that the temptation is heavier than you can bear and that you fear that it will so break and beat you down as to drive you to despair and blasphemy. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who has suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Brothers and sisters, do you take your sin seriously? Are you in a peacetime mindset? Or do you take your war, your battle with sin, seriously? You should. Because there is someone else who took your sin seriously. He took it seriously enough to have nails driven through his wrists. He took it seriously enough to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He took it seriously enough to go to hell and back for you. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there you shall be also. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, marvelous grace, marvelous grace that is greater than our sin. Lord, we confess to you that we are a sinful people. But we also know by the word of the gospel, by the word of truth, that there is grace that is greater than our sin. So Lord, as we sing now, would you help us to remember that we are indeed great sinners, but that we also have a great Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.